Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. Our host for today's episode is Nathan Oblack. Welcome back to the podcast for cultural reformation. I'm Nathan Oblack and I'm joined here in the Knox Cellar as usual by Ryan Aris and Dr. Joe Boot. And rest assured, uh, Joe checked our vaccine passports on the way into the cellar, so we're we're above board. No need to worry. <laughs> and uh, yours look fake, Nathan. Though, <laughs> it feels so good. <laughs> and uh, before we get into our our conversation for today, uh, just a few reminders for our listeners. But uh, we have an upcoming church and culture pastors colloquium, and uh, for those of you that don't know, that's a week long training program. For pastors, elders, and church ministry leaders, that's happening here at our study center uh, from November 15th to the 19th. And uh, on the 15th, of course, we have our Niagara Declaration Conference, and that's otherwise sold out. But uh, included in the pastors' colloquium is attendance in that uh, in that conference. And for the colloquium itself, we've got Joe, Tim Stevens, Aaron Rock, Andre Schutten, Andrew Sandlin, James White, and Doug Wilson all speaking. And uh, if you're interested and would like more information, you can find that on our website at ezrainstitute.ca. And if, if you have uh, a church leader uh, in your own congregation, uh, maybe uh, let them know about this, uh, this colloquium, and they can find information on our website. And one other thing to mention is uh, very soon you'll be able to hear this podcast on the Fight, Laugh, Feast app. Uh, we're going to be put on that app uh, very shortly, and you'll be able to listen to us there on our website, and you'll be able to continue to listen on your preferred uh, podcast platform. So look out for us there on the Fight, Laugh, Feast app. Just and as soon as they've cleared our vaccine passports. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're not going anywhere. I, I, uh, like, we're not, uh, we're also there. We're not, uh, we're not taking that's ourselves right. offline from, uh, so th- those of you who listen to us, uh, through the website or through our uh, our original feed. Yeah, we'll uh, still be there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, But we're also there. <laughs> so we're in both places at once. That's right. It's yeah. remarkable. Can our listeners handle that? Might be worth mentioning, Nathan, as well, that um, our pastor's colloquium is uh, directed towards church elders and that's ministry right. leaders in the life of the church. So that's right. if your mm-hmm. senior pastor isn't able to come, then mm-hmm. there may be another ministry leader, elder yeah. in the church, who you can right. direct to the colloquium. Yep. And, uh, and we encourage pastors to bring their wives for absolutely. the week as well. Yeah. Register soon. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. To avoid disappointment. That's right. Well, it really, it nearly is full. So limited time to register for that, uh, that colloquium. And if you were with us last week, uh, Ryan introduced uh, the theme we're going to be addressing this season on the podcast, and that's reformational thinking. And uh, Ryan, where are we going to take that conversation this week? Yeah. So this, uh, this idea of reformational thinking or this phenomenon of what's been uh, referred to as reformational thought. Uh, this is something that uh, we at the Institute uh, broadly, and Joe in particular, you've, uh, you've spent several years uh, studying, researching, teasing out the implications. And actually, uh, for those of you who listened through the summer, one of our, uh, one of our collaborative uh, episodes with Amos and Genesis was a kind of drive-by treatment of this uh, this theme of reformational thought hmm. 
some of the distinctives of it and some of the uh, te teasing out some of the uh, the implications of it and what we wanted to do what we wanted to do with the uh, the rest of our time here today and moving forward is park on a couple of those things and consider uh, what it means uh, and what it looks like and how it plays out to think reformationally. Mm -hmm. uh, so in a, uh, in a nutshell, that is where we're going. Stick around. It's actually going to be a, ve a very practical time. Yeah. A lot of, uh, sort of actionable ways to adjust and kind of cal calibrate the way, that, uh, the way that you see the world. Right. And I guess that's a point we want to make right off the top is that reformational thinking isn't merely for academics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Actually, isn't that one of the points that you make? It's not, that's right. it's not about, and we'll get to this, but it's not about trying to make everyone into a professional theologian. Right. Yeah. Or even a, it's not even about thinking about thinking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that we're just right. uh, um, sort of a uh, sort of echo chamber of, um, mm -hmm philosophical thought about you know epistemology about knowledge mm -hmm. but it really is about all of life and, mm -hmm. and that's why that's why in a certain sense we can talk about how effectively resourced we've been over the uh, over the years um, since the founding of the ministry really by a reformational vision um, that allows us to uh, apply scriptural truth and the fullness of the gospel into every area of life because mm -hmm. it's informed by a particular way of thinking. Uh, Joe, um, wh why don't we start, why don't we start off, uh, there are loads of different schools of thought, broad categories and umbrellas of uh, describing the different ways that people see the world, uh, rationalism, scientism, metaphysicism, mm -hmm. uh, reformational thought, what, uh, what is distinctive about it? Why don't we Why don't we start there? How does it distinguish itself from other ways of thinking about and viewing the world? Well, I would say probably the most important thing to say is that reformational thought claims to be a distinctly Christian uh, a philosophical reflection. It claims to be distinctly Christian or scriptural thought. Um, in fact, one would probably go as far as to say as that, in particular. It sees itself as um, emerging from the Reformation, mm. and in fact, in the early iterations of uh, Hermann Doerwerd's writing, who we'll come to shortly, I'm sure, in our conversation, he actually called it a Calvinistic philosophy. Mm. Um, so, what is um, uh, first and foremost, I think, important to say, as mm. in terms of its distinctive, is that it is self-consciously saying that. Um, the division of so-called philosophy and theology into uh, Christians do theology and non-Christians do philosophy, mm. and that philosophy is some kind of uh, alternative mm. route to knowledge uh, for mm. the non-Christian over against theology being the route to knowledge for the Christian is wrong. Would that be, would the distinction or the proposed distinction there be... Uh, the fact of revelation or like taking something on faith? Is that the difference between theology and philosophy in that kind of characterization? Yes, in that sort of characterization, philosophy would be thought of as uh, the 
the ex the exercise of human reason in an mm. autonomous or independent way, right? Whereas theology involves these um, super rational, um, uh, supra rational commitments mm. uh, that are sort of leaps of faith right. beyond yeah. reason. Uh, that's really the way it's been characterized in the in secular thought mm -hmm. in in the in the Western tradition. Now, of course, this is not to say that there haven't been Christians who have. Uh, attempted to d develop a distinctly uh, Christian way of thinking uh, to and to actually look at some of the resources of philosophy mm. and seek to uh, take a, a, a more Christian approach. Um, but these have been uh, what we might call synthesis approaches. So, mm. and we'll probably do an entire podcast on this um, in the in the weeks ahead. But for example, the the angelic doctor. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, mm. um, uh, f to whom we owe the sort of the, the whole tradition of scholasticism, took Aristotle, obviously a pagan philosopher, mm -hmm. and sought to interpret Aristotle, mm. in fact, reinterpret Aristotle um, for the church. Um, and so the resources uh, that were going into so called Christian philosophical thinking um, were really pagan. And there was an attempt just to try and synthesize them with Christian doctrines. Now, what Reformational uh, philosophy in its distinctive is saying is, no, we actually have to start afresh. Uh, we have to come at the broad uh, challenges of thinking, uh, not from a pagan paradigm, which we're trying to weld to or wed with the Bible and the Christian faith, but we actually have to uh, go to the, the scriptures themselves for a scriptural world and life view from which can emerge a Christian philosophy of life, a, a Christian philosophical thought, mm -hmm. uh, which of course then informs our theology, informs how we think about the issues within theology, informs our apologetics, informs uh, how we how we think about the unity and totality of reality and perhaps we'll mm -hmm. discuss kind of philosophy as such in a moment but in terms of reaching for its distinctive it, it was it was an attempt to say thus far in the christian tradition we have not adequately you know mm -hmm. if we want to talk about the reformation which went back to the sources you know back mm -hmm. to the scripture right um yeah. and that whole idea within you know always being in reform going back to something what the reformational tradition said was <clears throat> we have not sufficiently purged the mm. pagan philosophical ideas and in fact to some extent philosophical theology uh from our from the idea of the christian mind and of, of christian thought and we need to actually have a radical going to the root that's what radix radical really means we need to go to the root and that root has to be christ and his word and a scriptural worldview, not how are we going to interpret Aristotle or Plato mm. or some other philosopher for the church so that we can cobble together some kind of a, of a Christian philosophy. So you're saying before the Reformation, there were Christian thinkers that were attempting to develop a Christian philosophy, but uh, the Reformers came along and really sharpened that effort and maybe jettisoned some of the... Um, some of the thinking that was brought in and synthesized. Yeah. yeah. So we could say, uh, if you go back to Augustine, mm. you, you kind of have the first efforts there 
um, of a truly brilliant and orthodox mind to wrestle free. Uh, Augustine spends a lot of his time trying to wrestle free from from um, Neoplatonism, from Manichaeanism. These mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. Uh, um, philosophical trends that came down to him in his era. Manichaeanism was a kind of um, he- kind of a, a heresy influenced by Platonism, um, and he is trying to shake himself free of these assumptions that he'd uh, taken on these mm. these views that he'd taken on as an unbeliever. Um, and tries to develop the notion of Christian teaching, uh, Christian thought, and a distinctly scriptural way of thinking about these things. Perhaps best summed up in his uh, his um, dictum, you know, I believe in order that I may understand. Mm. Mm. Um, mm. Right. So that believing precedes true understanding. Mm. Now, it is the case that that uh, that Augustine does sort of conflate. Uh, theology and, and 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 philosophy. That's perhaps an, again another subject. And we don't want to try and cover too much in mm-hmm. one session, lest people start switching us off in their car yeah. <laughs> or in the kitchen right now. <laughs> thinking, what are these guys talking about? Uh, so, but but certainly Augustine, and then Anselm, mm. um, with his sort of his famous ontological argument about about God. Anselm, in a certain sense, brings tries to bring philosophical reflection and and prayer together as he's reaching for struggling for a more consistently christian way of understanding and then the reformers um uh, most especially john calvin is it becomes increasingly self-conscious about the fact that um greek philosophy is has made its way deep into roman catholic mm-hmm. theology and he's trying to shake free from that not altogether successfully one might add um, but tries to shake free from it. But very quickly after the Reformation, some of Calvin's successes are, are picking up again a kind of rational theology um, and falling back on some of the old rationalistic um, and neo-pagan themes. Um, and so it's not really then, I would say, until Abraham Kuyper, um, perhaps growing Van Prinsterer in the Netherlands and then Kuyper, where there's a where there's a real attempt to respond to the the, the modern uh, developments of modern theology, which of course some would say begin with Descartes. Sorry, in modern philosophy, I mean, uh, with Descartes, mm. and uh, and then of course Immanuel Kant. And how do you begin to respond to these rationalistic trends that had become started to dominate the university, uh, dominate the intellectual mm-hmm. class and descartes might be a good example just to be helpful at this point what what about we don't have too much time to talk about descartes but what about his philosophy was fundamentally wrong that that started mm. that trend well uh it's interesting that um i think it was pascal who said he, he couldn't forgive descartes because he built his entire philosophy without the lord jesus christ mm. And that was something that Pascal, um, and again, he's worthy of a mention here because I would place him within this broadly Augustinian tradition right. of um, uh, his famous um, reflections or thoughts, pensée, uh, where he, really just a brilliant, brilliant reflections on mm-hmm. the nature of the human thought, mm-hmm. um, the influence of the heart, the influence of habit. He, he understood that the issues were much broader than some sort of mathematical deconstruction of reality. Right. Breaking reality. The rationalist trend was to try and break down reality into its sort of most basic parts uh, and then try and build it all up again 
in terms of um, the rational mind. Mm. Um, so Descartes famously, you know, cogito ergo sum, I think, mm. therefore right. I am. Well, what's mm. the ultimate starting point for Descartes there? Now, Descartes was a Christian. He, he was a Catholic mm. Christian. He certainly yeah. didn't mean to be kicking off some sort of... Uh, philosophical rebellion against God, but he was trying to put human thought on some sort of indubitable, undoubtable foundation. But his starting point was the self and the thinking ego. And that's really what I mean by saying what the philosophers mean when they say that Descartes um, uh, sort of kicks off modern philosophy. It's no longer God that's the primary referent. It's now what, in terms of when I reflect on myself... Uh, and my own thought, do I not doubt? And how do I build from there, from this sort of un, undoubted or indubitable starting point, a, a structure, a rational structure for reality? Um, uh, and this sort of scientific ideal that so dominated the uh, the, the rationalist era. Um, so mm. you can see how in many respects, anti-Christian that is, mm -hmm. even though there was no deliberate attempt on his part to be anti-Christian, it's anti-Christian uh, in its orientation because the starting point to, to reflect on creation, I mean, and of course, John Calvin famously in book one understands that and talks about the fact that the knowledge of oneself is bound to the knowledge of God and to God's mm -hmm. self-revelation. Mm -hmm. So the notion that you could sort of have some sort of neutral... Uh, rational philosophical starting point in thought itself mm. um, that uh, can that will sometimes give you give you some kind of um, uh, absolute logical clarity mm -hmm. uh, to reach um, undoubtable indubitable conclusions. Um, this was the big mistake of the of the the rationalist to, to place human reason really on the th on the throne. Um, of uh, uh, of all thought, and of course, when we talk about logic or analysis, analysis in the original meaning of the Greek word actually to analyze means to loosen or to or to pull apart, and so um, it's it, the analysis is about breaking things down into certain constituents and then tr from their basic from their original unity to try mm -hmm. and understand mm -hmm. them better. So there's nothing wrong with analysis, but analysis in and of itself logical the, the the laws of logic or rules of logic as we think about them and talk about them um don't give you they don't supply you mm. with knowledge or premises to begin your arguments they are just right. rules for how an argument must proceed mm -hmm. so your um uh, was it uh, i think it was i think it was popper actually um who who pointed out that um I, I'm quoting now. He says, all arguments must proceed from assumptions. This is Karl Popper. Mm. Since all arguments must proceed from assumptions, it is plainly impossible to demand that all assumptions should be based on argument. Right? You, you can't have an infinite regress there. Mm -hmm. uh, so all arguments are based on assumptions. Mm -hmm. Logic doesn't give you those foundations. It just tells you how to work on them. So it can cut in a number of different directions, if you will, depending on what your basic assumptions are. So this is where uh, the reformational distinctive comes in as we circle back to, to, to Ryan's original question is, how do we build a total way of thinking mm. 
that isn't a synthesis jumble of a bit of this and a bit of that and mm. a bit of mm-hmm. here and a smorgasbord, which is what you know Christian thought really looked like from in terms yeah. of its philosophical foundations, a sort of smorgasbord. How can something be developed uh, robustly, consistently, coherently based upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Remember, Paul the apostle says, you know, don't be taken captive by empty deceit, by an em- empty philosophy based mm. on the traditions of men and not upon Christ. So Paul's condemnation there was not of philosophy as such. Um, and philosophy, the, the very word, um, is a conjunction of, mm. of two uh, words. I think that's the right expression mm-hmm. to use. Um, of uh, philo and sophia. Yep. Philo meaning love, sophia meaning wisdom. It's credited to Pythagoras in the 6th century BC, if tradition is to be believed. Mm. Um, but uh, but but fundamentally, fundamentally, philosophy, how could we begin to think as Christians about these, about the unity and totality of creation, but from a distinctly and coherently Christian standpoint? Um, Thomas Aquinas, for example, because of his debt to Aristotle and his attempt to reinterpret Aristotle, has this. He's wrestling with this problem of how can you have the Greeks didn't believe in creation ex nihilo. There was no uh, um, creation moment, as it were. Um, creation as wholly dependent on an eternal God didn't enter in, enter into their thinking. So. Uh, at the root, actually, of reformational thought is a proper understanding of creation mm. and not one which is trying to incorporate, you know, Greek ideas of form and matter uh, and sort of cannibalize those into some kind of Christianized um, pagan philosophy. Um, so, well, this is all groundedness in Christ yeah, is key. Right. I was just going to mention that this this way of thinking has been referred to as cosmological thinking as well, yeah. has it not? Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah so, um, you know, we mentioned the the Calvinistic philosophy. It was it was later called the the um, philosophy of of the cosmonomic idea, which just means mm. cosmic law, um, law for the cosmos. Or, or you might even say that, in fact, there was some discussion about whether it should be called the philosophy of the creation idea. Mm. Um, but they but uh, because of the the trend of philosophy as that as a, as a, a discipline which is looking for a fundamental law idea a law order for creation how do you identify the structure uh, or the structures of creation they went with this rather complex maybe a slightly unhelpful in the end you know philosophy of the law idea which makes it sound awfully impenetrable and unfriendly mm-hmm. which it isn't sounds like law yeah or like it but law, Jewish so law race, word yeah, is a yeah. is maybe a is maybe a good way of talking about their thinking there that it's, mm-hmm. creation is God's law word. So this is the distinct, the big foundational distinctive. Mm-hmm. Joe, you mentioned earlier uh, that uh, sort of at the the root, the radix of the reformation, the, uh, the behind reformational thought is the centrality of the heart mm. um, versus over against. Um, uh, reason, can you, uh, you, you? We've we've gone through Descartes, but can you just uh, describe the like the distinction be- between uh, those two centers? What is that? Uh, mm-hmm. What do those two different starting points uh, get us? Yeah. So uh, maybe this is a good moment to to talk briefly about 
Herman Doiverd and how he understood mm. that. It's always a good moment. Uh, so so that uh, <laughs> uh, we can you know hopefully shed shed a little bit of light on it. So uh, so Her- Herman Doiverd and let's sort of situate him as a, 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 um, a mid twentieth century uh, philosopher um, who was um, actually a, a legal philosopher really initially um, and was within the uh he's from the netherlands and was within this kuyperian tradition the, the, of, of abraham kuyper or father abraham as we sometimes like to call him right. uh who had really begun to help christians think through uh their faith not just as a set of doctrines concerning church order and um, a sort of renovation of christian doctrine but actually as a life system as a as a world and life view that the, the scriptures don't just give us a, a, a church order and the reformation he says wasn't simply about a new church order it was about helping furnishing us with a total world and life view rooted in christ and in the gospel and um uh, he famously and we'll come to this another week big uh, introduced this idea or at least began to give real shape to the, the idea of sphere sovereignty in thinking about human uh, institutions um, social relationships and structures within society and so um, so Herman Doiverd was within that tradition and um, he began to uh, seek to uh, develop um, in his study of philosophy, a distinctly Christian way of, of thinking, and he did so alongside his brother-in-law, Dirk Vollenhoven, who is uh, often um, not mentioned even even among those who are familiar with the Reformational tradition. Now, what's interesting is that um, Doiverd himself said that his sort of aha moment, his eureka moment, if you will, <laughs> was when he was reading... Uh, at the time, I think what were unpublished devotional papers of um, Abraham Kuyper's, mm. uh, and I think he was in when he was reading these, he was in Kuyper's old office mm. um, on the, the the person and work of the Holy Spirit, and which is to me very very interesting uh, in and of itself that he was and he and he said that he as he was reading them he sensed a very different atmosphere to Kuyper's more formal work more formal philosophical work more formal theological work that he sensed this kind of entirely different atmosphere in his the reading of Kuiper's thoughts on the work of the holy spirit and he said it was in reading that and especially the reflection on the heart the human heart as the center and the root of the human person in scripture that for Doiver, this kind of moment, it struck him, uh, he says, like a sort of bolt of lightning, really, that uh, the, the, the problem or one of the fun- fundamental issues within philosophy had been the, had been the attempt to find the root and um, foundation of thought, actually not in the, the heart of the human person, but in one of the functions of the human person. So if you can sort of think about it this way or conceptualize it this way, um, the, the heart is really the, the, the concentration point of like, a, like the, the sun through a magnifying glass to a, to, to a, to a focal point. You know, if you were you know, trying to light a leaf with a magnifying glass on a summer's day, mm-hmm. 
all the different aspects of the 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 the, the, the human beings functioning in our lives. We're, we're so we're logical beings, we're physical beings, we're biological beings. Uh, we we use language. We're historical, cultural creatures. Uh, there's an economic aspect to to our lives. There's a faith aspect to our lives, and so on. All these different aspects of our lives. And uh, as we go on through the season, we'll we'll touch on those more yeah, and more, develop we'll, that those ideas. Yeah, these, this is absolutely central and critical to mm. reformational thought. So we'll talk more about that. But all these, but but we can all appreciate just intuitively that there are various aspects or functions to our lives, the way in which yeah. human beings function in the world, and. Doiver suddenly realized by this sort of shaft of light, as it were, as he was reading this work about the, the Holy Spirit, that, that the Bible teaches that it's the human heart that is the center. Sometimes we might use the language of the spirit, the center of the human person, not simply referring to our emotions, not simply referring even to our thought but the concentration point of all of our functions within creation is the heart, and that's the center of the person. And one function, of course, of the human heart, of the, and of course, by the way, the heart is indefinable. As soon as you start trying to define it, um, you start defining it in terms of its various functions. Right. So, uh, and it's, it's all of those ways in which we function in the world that that are expressions of so we might say in a sense that the heart of the person is is um pre-functional uh it's it's that which uh, constitutes the full temporal character of our existence is consecrated as at a point in our hearts um in fact doiver had actually even used the language that was people got confused about and, and muddled up he would talk about the um the supratemporal, uh, the supratemporal heart, uh, in, in, by which he simply meant that the heart is that which transcends all of our different functions in the world. It's the it's the it's the focal point of them all. Now, but it's not the total, like the sum of the parts. No, mm. no, that's right. So um, the uh, that's why, in that sense, the heart is indefinable. Mm -hmm. And and you know, as soon as you try and that's why it's always been so difficult for human beings to define the self. I mean, what what is the self? Mm. What is, who is I? Even when Descartes says I think, therefore, I, who's he talking about? Who is I? Mm. Where, where is the unity of the I that he's talking about? So, Doiver suddenly realizes that the heart is the central is the central point. This is the root, the religious root of the human person, and that things like logical reasoning and our um, Feelings, uh, the sensitive aspect of our lives, um, the cultural and historical functions of our lives. Mm -hmm. These are all um, ways in which we function within creation, within time. Um, but they're not the root. Mm -hmm. They're and not ultimate. They're not ultimate. They're not the religious root. And what mm -hmm. was going on in Kant, in, and he's, and of course, Doiverd, because of his era, is responding to Immanuel Kant and the, and the Neo-Kantians and so on. Uh, that followed him, he says that, uh, that, that the mistake of these rationalistic philosophers is that they were looking for, the, in a certain sense, the, 
the Archimedean point, right? The, you know, if Archimedes famously said, you know, give me a lever and a place to stand and I'll, I'll lift the world. Yeah. Um, where is the place f- where we can stand to understand reality, to understand the structure of reality, its unity and diversity? Um, the rationalist said, well, it's analysis. The place to stand is man's reason. Uh, whereas, uh, which um, the, the the sort of the thinking ego, you know, the the, the pure reason, as Kant would have said, but um, Doivert recognised that um, this 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 um, rational ego, this thinking rational ego that the philosophers were talking about, was itself an abstraction. It was a creation of uh, it was a it was a product of Kant's own thought. Uh, it wasn't the root of his thinking. It was the product of his thought that mm-hmm. he made then and said, oh, this is it. This, can, this will be the root of all thought. But it's the heart that's the root of all thought. So the rationalist says the root of all thought is not the human heart, which in some respects it wants to deny, but it's going to be um, one of our functions, mm. human reasoning. Mm. And that, of course, means it runs into all kinds of problems, which we'll address in other shows as we talk more about reformational thinking. But this was the significance of the heart that, you know, Jesus makes plain. It's the the heart, uh, from the heart come um, murders and adulteries and and, and so on, because this is the root of the human person. Scripture says that uh, above all else, guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. Mm. So this language of the Bible of the heart never identifies man's reasoning as the root of his being. So, and then recognizing this religious root in the heart enables you to understand how and why these rationalists who claim to be beginning with indubitable reason and, and uh, just fundamental truths of reason all reach different conclusions mm-hmm. and different mm-hmm. philosophies of life because their reasoning is not neutral, just some sort of based on some kind of factual existence. It's being shaped and informed constantly by the religious root, by the, by the, um, by a religious ethos, a spiritual ethos in the heart, uh, and that's why people reach all kinds of different conclusions, whilst all claiming to to base them on reason and rationality, uh, because um, it's the religious foundation of knowledge in the heart, because the heart is the religious root of the human person. That's what switched Doivert on to give a, a basically a cornerstone, a foundation stone to reformational thinking, that we must begin with a biblical understanding of the heart. Um, and it's the Holy Spirit who, of course, mm-hmm. works on our heart, regenerates our heart, right. so that we can believe rightly. Yeah, of course. So that our faith can be rooted mm-hmm. in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, so it ought to make sense to Christians that a heart of stone that has been turned into a heart of flesh will think in a distinct way in, in every area of life. Right. And, well, well, Go ahead. That's that's interesting because um, uh, let me you know, if, given as we've talked a little bit about Doiverd, why don't you why don't we just quote him for a second? Mm. What he says about this when he talks about um, the Word of God, the Scriptures as they are uh, addressed as a spiritual power, if you will, addressed to the heart itself in the center of our existence. So now he's saying it's not not just addressed the Word of God, not simply as a as a text that we're analyzing for some, you know, um, exegetical exercise, uh, not simply as a cultural product. Here's mm. the Bible. How did it get assembled? Mm. Um, or even as a, as a, as a, an aspect of simply our, our, the practice of our faith, some sort of pistical aspect of our life where we're confessing mm-hmm. the Heidelberg confession or right. some other confession, mm. 
but how the word of God addresses itself to the heart by the spirit. He says, in this central confrontation with the word of God, man has nothing to give, but only needs to listen and to receive. God does not speak to theologians, philosophers, and scientists, but to sinners, lost in themselves and made into his children through the operation of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. In this central and radical sense, God's word penetrating to the root of our being has to become the central motive power of all of the Christian life within the temporal order with its rich diversity of aspects, occupational spheres, and tasks. As such, he says, the central theme of creation, of creation, fall into sin, and redemption should also be the central starting point and motive mm. of our theological and philosophical thought. If our heart finds itself fully in the grip of the self-revelation of God as creator, we can no longer imagine that there would exist a safe and neutral zone which is withdrawn from God. So you see the significance of that for all of life. If the heart is the root of all these other aspects, if our heart's transformed by the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. in terms of a, a, an understanding of our creation, our fall into sin, our redemption in Jesus Christ, and the consummation of all things in the Lord Jesus, we can talk about more broadly the kingdom of God. If our heart's in the grip of that, then we couldn't imagine that there is a safe neutral zone anywhere mm -hmm. that's withdrawn from right. God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's why we as an institute talk so much about every sphere of life. <laughs> we do, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> and education and politics and yeah. law and mm. uh, um, uh, sports and entertainment and, and, and economics and any and every other sphere of life because they are governed by a religious motive mm. rooted in the heart. It's that radical regeneration of the heart. That was the key to the starting point of a truly radical christian philosophy mm -hmm. uh because it's rooted in the the regeneration of the heart and recognizing the heart as the religious root of our being not our reason um as though you know reasons as good as far as it goes uh it's not fallen um this was the, the trap that many of the scholastics fell into they just thought well reasoning is fine yeah uh, you know the rational soul uh, the rational ego it's all good but it needs, but it can't bring us to redemption. For that, we need the addition of grace. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, the the for a truly Christian philosophy, no, that the the our thinking, our analyzing is radically depraved and fallen mm. because of the condition of our heart, which is the religious root of our being. Yeah, yeah, and that uh, I think it's important. We've said it a couple of times that like radically depraved. That's that's not just some adjective to mean very. That uh, that's fundamentally, foundationally, yeah. fundamentally yeah. in every area. Right? Um, yes, and this uh, this uh, this notion of the heart. This is this is foundational to answer. I'm just thinking about kind of how how this uh, how this plays out. How does this affect the way that I see the world? Because this this provides a foundation to answer the question: What is a human being? Mm -hmm. Hmm. And from there, you can you know that's going to have an immediate and consequent influence on you know how do i relate to my neighbor how do i choose how to educate my kids how right. do i choose how yeah. to vote mm -hmm. all yeah. of these immediate things flow from and or, or rest on 
that yeah. bedrock foundational mm, assumption. Absolutely. Are we, uh, are we creatures made in the image of God, wholly dependent on him, functioning within a, a, a world that is governed by the law word of God um, so that we're, we're related um, inescapably in terms of meaning to every aspect of our life and experience? Or um, are we, in fact, to be identified with some aspect of creation itself um one of the functions of creation so frequently we're identified with the the biological we're just biological biochemical machines Mm. some you know uh, some philosophers philosophies have simply identified us with reason rationalism Mm -hmm. some with matter and energy materialism um some with history we're just uh we, we are just caught up in a cyclical flux of historical eventuation mm-hmm. um or economic beings historicism karl marx. and karl marx mm-hmm. in the economic so that mm-hmm. we are you can account for reality and human behavior and the mm-hmm. human person even and the human family yeah. purely in terms of economic forces mm-hmm. so pretty much every false philosophy begins with a false understanding of the human person mm. And if you don't have this radical creational foundation that we're, you know, God's image bearers, wholly dependent on him. Remember at the beginning um, uh, of scripture in the book of Genesis, there is this let there be, let there be, and there was. And uh, God said, let us make man. And uh, every word of God, it's important to remember in this way of thinking is a law word. So when God says, let there be, uh, there is both a command involved in that. Um, so the, the command of God calls things into being. Then there is an, the, 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 the reality of then the response of creation to that command to be and to continue to be. And that's where there is promise involved. So when God says, let there be, that's his law word, which involves not only the coming into being of those that thing, uh, but also its continuance, the promise of its continuance. Hence this idea within reformational thought of creation as God's law word. Um, and the, the radical character of the human person is in that we are unlike in, in, the, in a degree to which other, asp- other creatures cannot respond all creatures respond to the word of god in some way but human beings uniquely have a response ability a peculiar kind of response ability to the word of god uh to be a kingly priesthood within creation um and that uh, we are god's image bearers we are called to reflect the will and purpose of god back to all of creation and we're made for personal relationship with him in a way no other aspect of creation is so until we get that right right as you've said there is no getting right the rest of our philosophy of life mm-hmm. unless it's rooted mm-hmm. there in the promised command of god to be and that we are his image bearers made to serve him which is which is foundational to and let's make this point really clear the ultimate goal of all of this and of this discussion as we take it forward over the next few weeks is mm. is in the application. Uh, mm. It's in the fact that 
we are called, we have a responsibility doing clear philosophical reflection, cultural apologetics like the Institute does, is part of our response. It's part of our obedient response to God's promised command and to his command that we should rule and subdue and be his vicegerents, bear his image. So part of our task is to is to be responding in every area of life to the word of God. And as we begin to think rightly, then we begin to apply right. correctly mm-hmm. in these different areas of life. That's why it's so important. It's not some sort of dull sidebar or that's only for those people who are oriented that way. No, if we want to have a Christian way of life, Christian action, we need a Christian mind. Mm-hmm. We need to think Christianly, as we often say. Mm-hmm. And that's why this aspect of our response to the Lord we talked a bit, um, I think, last week in our previous podcast about a Christian cultural apologetics, a true Christian philosophy of life being an aspect of prophecy, a kind of mm-hmm. prophecy. Let me, um, let me just quote Evan Runner on that uh, as we think about the philosophical task. He says, as Christians engaged in our philosophical task, we are to go on the offensive to extend God's prophecy to the ends of the earth to all the nations of the world, and in pushing outward, always putting to the test the spirits that are at work everywhere in the world, confident that he who is in us and who by his spirit binds us together in the bonds of love is greater than he that is in the world, Mm. and that our Lord's intention is, as he has told us, the establishment of his supremacy over all his creation and the fulfillment of his creation design. End quote. Hmm. So that that's really what we're talking about when we talk about reformational thought, not some abstract, dull, heady, irrelevant to the to life and the world exercise, but this extension of Christ's supremacy over all His creation to fulfill the creation design. And if we're going to know the creation re- design, we need to think Christianly in terms mm-hmm. of a philosophy that's governed and shaped and controlled by the Word of God and a, and a distinctly Christian worldview. Mm, great. And that's uh, that's going to be all the time we have for our conversation today, but we're going to continue with this theme uh, in a new episode next week. And if you'd like to uh, hear a little bit more on this topic and much of what we've discussed today, Joe's written an article called The Constant Gardener, and you can find it in the 2020 issue, the spring 2020 issue of Jubilee Magazine. And it's a free download from our website, ezrainstitute.ca. And like I said, we'll be back next week with a new episode. Those uh, those downloads are actually on Ezra Press. On Ezra Press, right, right. And you'll find a link to there on our website as well. Right. So on ezrapress.ca. And again, this is uh, the podcast for Cultural Reformation, and we are reminding you, as always, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory. It's passed down as a prophecy Every year about this time